Hello everyone, my name is Matthew Kidman and welcome to the first episode of Success and More Interesting Stuff. Grant Hackett has experienced towering highs and some deep valleys in his 40 years. Today he is on the upward swing. In January 2019, he was made Chief Executive Officer of Generation Life, the operating business of ASX listed company, Generation Development. Six months later, his mentor and executive chairman, finance industry veteran, Rob Coombs, gave up his executive role at the company to let Hackett take over the reins. Not bad for a 40-year-old who has spent the best part of 30 years swimming up and down a pool. Hackett won seven Olympic medals, including three gold, and 19 World Championship medals, of which 10 were gold. Like many top sports people, he found life difficult, out of the limelight and away from competition. After a multi-year search, he may just have filled that competitive void by committing himself to another Herculean task, successfully running a public company. Is the retired swimmer and musician up for the task? Welcome, Grant. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks very much, Matt. Thanks for having me. Yes, and I did say musician. So when you were a kid, you were part of a band. You were a guitarist. I was, Is I was. Correct? Yeah, no, no, I loved it actually when I was a kid. So growing up through the 90s, we had all the great rock bands such as, the, you know, the Foo Fighters, Pearl Jam, Green Day and, uh, of course, like any teenager, the dreams to be a rock star. So I was in a band uh, with my brother and a few friends actually from Surf Lifesaving. So I grew up on the Gold Coast and, yeah, we all got in a band and actually started getting quite serious. We, we ended up getting booked out three weeks in advance and I remember having the sit-down discussion with uh, mum and dad and they said, are you going to, to be a, a swimmer or an athlete or are you going to be a musician? And, uh, you know, swimming always won. I always wanted to go to the Olympic Games. So we kind of had to, you know, hang up the guitar, so to speak, and uh, move into things a little bit more seriously. But it was good fun. Rockstar would have been uh, my choice. But the band was called Jaded Time. Is that correct? Very good. Yes, you've done your research. Jaded Time was the, the, the name of the band. Yeah, went, went for a couple of years. Doesn't sound too optimistic, a little bit depressing. Uh, teenage moodiness. I, I think that was the nineties, though, wasn't it? That was kind of the the Nirvana's of the world and Soundgarden. So it was a bit of that grunge rock, and that's what we love to play. So it was probably in line with that uh, underlying ethos of that that grunge music era. Down and cranky. Now, favorite song to play on the guitar? Metallica's "Nothing Else Matters." That's that's a great song. I actually prefer to play that one on lead guitar. So I used to play bass guitar in the band. Um, and there's plenty of great bass songs that you love to play. Uh, I always love playing the Violet Femmes too. That was a, a, a great band through the 90s. Um, but yeah. Easter but, in the sun. Yeah, absolutely. And and always gets the audience going as well. But um, yeah, no, I loved playing Nothing Else Matters because I think it's just, it's the whole intro to that song is just so beautiful and and, and just so, you know, well put together. And uh, and it's got a couple of real rocky bits through that song. And it's a, it's a classic. It's a haunting tune, but I, I would have thought the, Nothing Else Matters might have been a, a bit of an insight into yourself in terms of what you're trying to achieve in life. <laughs> um, you could say I do have that blinker-like focus. Uh, when, when I want something, it can feel like nothing else matters sometimes. And, uh, yeah, it's probably indicative of my personality a little bit. As soon as I, I – I'm very goal-orientated, obviously, from my background and, uh, you know, all the things I've sort of done in and outside of sport um, – and, and I still work in four-year cycles. It's really weird just because of the Olympic cycle. So for me, um, yeah, when I get really focused on something, I, I really do put 100% into it. And, uh, yeah, nothing else does matter sometimes. And I need to probably be reminded of that every now and again. So when you line up for management or sales meetings, you don't get there early and pull out the guitar and start <laughs> playing the, the, the intro into nothing, nothing Else Matters as the, as the teams work, walk in? Oh, probably if I did that, no one else would turn up. So I'm, I'm not that good, unfortunately. But, uh, yeah, occasionally at, at home I'll, I'll pick up and play. I mean, these days I, I just, you know, you're so busy with family and work and, you know, just trying to keep fit, uh, travelling around when we're not sort of in a COVID situation. So for, for me, picking up the guitar is rare these days. But, um, yeah, it, it'd be something I'd like to do a lot more. The one thing that I really loved about music, which is probably an important thing, from an emotional perspective, is that it keeps you absolutely present. And I think that's what I loved about it. When you're playing guitar or you're playing drums, because I used to play the drums sometimes in the band as well, um, you were just so focused on that. And there's no other thoughts that come into your head except for exactly what you're doing. So it's quite a centering exercise. And, and that's that's one of the big things that I do get out of music. 
Well, it's a great way to relax, given that it's always difficult to concentrate on something outside of work or whatever you're doing. So uh, I wish I wish I'd play guitar. Now, let's get on to generation development, code GDG. It's an unusual creature. We were talking before we started the podcast. It was formerly Ostock, the stockbroking firm, and it had a few bits and pieces to it. It had a prop, property group. It also had a life bond company. Do, do you want to uh, kind of run us through now what it is and what it concentrates on today? Because it's moved away from those stockbroking roots, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, Generation Development Group, as you said, GDG, the ASX ticker, um, has got two main subsidiary businesses, one being Generation Life, which is a life company which distributes a, a, basically a structure or platform you could call, um, which is an investment bond, which is an after-tax paying structure like superannuation. And then on the other side is we have a 37% stake in Lonsec Holdings, which is one of the leading uh, research companies in Australia. When you sort of think of research and getting access to distribution, you need kind of Lonsec, Zenith, um, or Morningstar. Uh, so the the Generation Life um I guess business has been something that uh, I've really loved and enjoyed. Uh, I first joined the group a few years ago where I was running the sales department there and, you know, it had written a billion dollars worth of business in 13 and a half years since its inception uh, as a life company. And then the last three and a bit years, we've written over a billion dollars in that finite period. And one of the big drivers around that was the changes to superannuation, obviously the caps, particularly that $1.6 million cap, and people looking for tax-effective alternative structures to be able to invest through. Um, This is the the, the ultimate structure uh, with the most flexibility outside of superannuation um, with a maximum tax rate of 30%. So, We've really had to, these, this structure is nothing new. It's been around much longer than superannuation, but there's been a real education back in the marketplace. And so I've been traveling around the country, seeing, you know, dealer groups, financial advisors, um, anyone that would listen, basically, that was interested in investing um, to take a look at this because you really can improve your overall returns. And not to mention, there's a lot of ancillary benefits through this structure around estate planning, the fact that it doesn't distribute capital gains or income. So it's great to hold inside a trust if you don't need that that income that people like to distribute out. So um, it's a business that's been growing kind of, you know, anywhere from 20 to up to 40% um, year on year. Uh, it's got CAGR around sales and, and net inflows of anywhere from 25 up to 50% across some of those metrics for the last three or four years. So we've had a very good run and we've shown consistency and growth over the past few years. And yeah, looking to, to continue to deliver on that and hopefully continue to, you know, diversify the group um, even more so with further acquisitions outside the organic growth that we're driving at the moment. So it really went into hibernation when compulsory super came around and there was limits off how much you could put into super. But that, as we know, is being wound back gradually by various authorities and the light bomb business seems to have come back into vogue or it started to, you've got about, I think about 1.3 billion under management or something like that, close to that. But it's just so we got it clear, so you might have a product, uh, might be an education bond. I come along and buy or invest in that in that bond, and it might have a ten year life, and I don't pay tax as I go through. Is that is that a is that a layman's view of how the products work? Yeah, very close to the mark. Uh, effectively, if you were to invest in one of our products through the tax structure, um, you're paying the internal bond tax. And normally, most people are invested in some sort of equity. So you get your ad backs. Um, we have capital management in there now where we can offset a capital loss against income. So we can have effective rates as low as 16 or 17 percent um, on average for, for some of our funds, which is quite compelling if you're on a you know 30 or 47 percent tax rate. So that's first and foremost. So you're, you're paying tax at a much, much lower rate. And then obviously, you're getting the compounding effect of that over time. So your investment's growing much, much quicker. And then once you hit 10 years, there's a particular rule that says any distributions that you receive, either the whole capital amount or a partial partial distribution, is no more personal tax liability. So you don't have to declare anything on a tax return. So it's a very, very compelling proposition for you know, highly affluent, high net worth individuals who are obviously paying higher tax rates, particularly in their personal name. I'm good for professions like doctors or lawyers that are always going to be on, you know, high marginal tax rates. Um, and, and if they're in the middle of their working life and they know they're going to be capped out in super, this is a great alternative or a great complementary strategy to that as well. And strangely, it just it seems like Ostock's the only group because there's several several companies that have uh, a lot on license, but it's only Ostock that seems, or now Generation Development, that seems to have tapped back into it and thought it was a growth area. 
Yeah, well, we've had, um, you know, we've got quite a few competitors um, in, in terms of, you know, the investment bond space. So Australian Unity, um, you know, they've always done very well. We've got Centuria, Key Invest, we've seen Commonsure in there. Um, AMP uh, were in there, but they've obviously sold off their life business, so they've closed that book off for now. But, yeah, the, I think the biggest thing that we have it as an advantage, besides we have quite a, a superior product and, and more product features than most of the other providers and a great investment menu, um, is the fact that, they all have so many competing priorities. They have lots of products. They have lots of other um, key distribution strategies that they're trying to execute where in our life company, this is our sole product. Um, So we're very much focused on that and focused on always evolving our products, you know, continuing to develop that competitive advantage and that value proposition for our investors and our financial advisors that that love the structure and, and utilize it quite frequently. And like I said, the biggest part of the job right now is really re educating the market on the new age or the 21st century investment bond. It's not the thing that people, there's not many things that come back from the 80s. This is one of them. They were huge in the 80s and, in fact, the quarter the size of superannuation at that point in time. But um, now we fast forward where the product's much cheaper. It's not a bundled life product. It's got a lot of investment options where you can construct your whole portfolio and, and get you know multiple options within each asset class. So it's a very different product to, to what it was you know, sort of 30, 40 years ago. It must suit me because I'm stuck in the 80s, music, clothes, <laughs> so on. So I'm the ideal uh, investor. <laughs> okay, let, let, we'll come back to uh, GDG to a bit later. Let's let's go back and talk about you uh, and try and work out why you, you've got capabilities to be a CEO. So in your early days, obviously everyone knows you as Olympic swimmer, but both you and your brother were competitive swimmers. In fact, your brother raced head-to-head with the legendary Kieran Perkins. Um, not to be unfair to your brother, what, why was it in the same household with two very competitive swimmers? Why was it that you went on to be an Olympian and, and a gold medalist at that and he didn't? Was there a difference in the personality? Oh, we're, we're very different people, um, don't get me wrong, but it was more that he pursued different interests. So, um, I was really focused on going to the Olympics. My my brother actually qualified for the Olympics at age 17 when he was in year 12, but because of some uh, political issues, actually got pulled off that team. And then when he got pulled off that team, I think that disheartened him quite a bit. And so he decided to go into Ironman, surf lifesaving. So he went and did the Uncle Toby Super Series for, for eight years and finished runner-up to you know, Trevor Hendy and the National Ironman a couple of times and uh, won quite a few races in the Uncle Toby. So he was a very, very competitive and great Ironman. It's just that I went on to, I guess, more of an international sport and and stayed at the top for, for quite some time. And for me, my swimming career, first and foremost, because he's six and a half years older than me, was about beating him. Uh, was about beating his times because, uh, you know, super competitive. He's six foot four, I'm six foot uh, six. And uh, we've always had, you know, a competitive streak in both of us, uh, you know, not a, a thing that's really come out of um, nurture. It's just been nature. That's just the way we were both born. Uh, we always competed, you know, any sport that we did, we always competed as hard, as fast and got the absolute most out of ourselves. But yeah, he, he just took a different path to, to what I did. And um, I think I had the advantage because I was a younger brother and I got to see what was done well, what was done poorly. Um, mum and dad didn't really care about me the as ra- much. The rails, right? Yeah, exactly. And mum and dad didn't care about it as much because they'd gone through all those years with him. And it's tough on parents getting up early mornings and taking to training and competitions and all the various parts that they play a role in, which is about 90% of it. Um, but then when it came to me, I remember being in the back of the car when I was 14 years old, uh, coming down from Brisbane back down to the Gold Coast where we lived in the middle between you know heats and finals at the, the Queensland Championships. And I remember my dad saying to my mum, well, we did it with Craigie. We'll, we, we better do it with Grant. You know, So it was kind of like a, <laughs> a thing that they didn't really want me to pursue, uh, I could feel. But um, it was nice to know that I had their full support, um, but they weren't going to put any pressure on me. It was really the, the pressure and the goal setting was applied by me from day one, and uh, that's the way it always remained. They were just great supporters. So he, you beat him in the high stakes, but he sent... Uh, set the benchmark for you in terms of swimming and what you could be. So if, if we were uh, like all all the good CEOs I've ever met or, or management people, they're all very competitive in one way or another. So and it's it's a crucial element to succeeding because you're in a competition effectively in any industry. So if I, if I was to say one to ten, with ten being the most competitive, how would you rank yourself? Twelve. 
<laughs> I, 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 um, it's really funny because I'm and actually... And does that apply to everything you do? Uh, I try not to as much these days. I mean, I'm, I'm 40 now, so I like to think I've matured a little bit more. But it, it does. It gets you in trouble, to, to be totally frank. What's a great quality in one setting is an absolute ugly quality in another. Um, so you, and you have to be aware and you have to be conscious of that. And I don't look like an overly competitive person. If you were to sit down next to me and have a conversation and, uh, you know, get to know me a little bit, you would think I'm a pretty relaxed, you know, I might, you might think I've got a sense of humor. I love to be, you know, pretty jovial and have a bit of fun. But then when it comes to competition or competitors, um, I, I, my focus just narrows and I see a black hole and I, I go straight for it. Um, and probably what's indicative of, of that is when I was five, my mum loves to tell this story, is mum used to call me, it seemed like you were even a docile kid. You know, you were so relaxed, nothing seemed to phase you or worry you. But when I was five, I did a swimming race. And at five, there's no real competition. So I got to go up against a couple of other five-year-olds at the local pool, which was up in North Queensland. My dad was a police officer and he got transferred to, to Innisfail. So we lived up there for a, for a few years. And I did this race and, and apparently I, I won it by heaps. But when I hit the wall, I yelled out, did I win? <laughs> and my mum was like, she goes, the whole place heard it. She goes, I was so embarrassed. <laughs> I think mum went back into the bushes or, or something like that. So, but that's when she thought, oh my God, this is, I feel like I don't even know my own son, just how competitive and how driven. Um, I've got a live one. Here. Yeah, correct, correct. But but I don't show that too often. It's just, you know, it's not not in my personality to, to take that out socially and to compete on every single level um, now. I, I certainly don't do that. But when I have a, a goal that I fixate on and, and I know it's highly competitive, it just it seems to get the best out of me. It seems to just lift my performance. And, um, yeah, I, I love being in competitive environments. And it's really funny. It was, I mean, you alluded into your introduction. I've had, you know, the, the highs, you know, the, the top of the mountain. I've seen some of the valleys as well. And, and I think we all do through life. And some people have got to go through it publicly like I did. But the one thing that I really learnt um, through all of that is that people would say, why don't you just slow down? Why don't you just relax a little bit? Why, why don't you, you know, not be so competitive, not do things that are full on, not set such big goals? And I tried doing that for a while. And that was more destabilizing for my type of personality than anything else. So for me, having a sense of drive, deep purpose, you know, goals in an area that I, I really love or people that I enjoy working with is really, really important just for my emotional well-being because it's just a big part of who I am. So I had to learn a lot of those things the hard way. Doing nothing in my life, you know, if I was a billionaire and I was doing nothing, I'll be in all sorts of trouble. Um, I think that would be emotionally unhealthy for me. So that period where uh, after your uh, retirement, your first retirement from swimming, that period where, as you said, you, you saw some lows that were played out in front of uh, most Australians' eyes, unfortunately, was – and then you tried to make a comeback or you did make a comeback. Um, it, it Was that all a search for that competitive void that, that you needed to nourish, that you needed an outlet to channel that competition into? It was, it was really funny. It's, it's a little bit more complex than that because most people just think, oh, you know, you sort of finish your swimming career, you must have just sort of lost your sense of identity. And don't get me wrong, that's certainly a part of it. It's a big transition like anyone going into retirement or through divorce or through other a massive transition in life. It is destabilizing and you do have to work your way through it. And you do, you know, and you should always seek help and guidance and, and support. Um, for me, when I retired, I, I was, you know, studying at university. I you know, did my MBA and did really well at all of those things and, you know, went straight into banking literally three weeks after the Beijing Olympics. So I was in banking and finance um, through BT and Westpac for, for many, many years. So I, I really had something that I enjoyed, I was passionate about, I got that competitive streak. But from a personal point of view, um, you know, I had a divorce and I missed my kids. It was very, very public. Um, and, and that whole thing really undid me. And I, I didn't know how to be vulnerable enough to ask for help. And so through that, that whole sort of period and searching and kind of going, you know, as an athlete, you're so used to being impervious to adversity. You're, you know, you have an injury, you get sick, you overcome it, you move forward. And that's the way you iron fist your way through those things. In your personal life, when things come undone, the first thing you should do is ask for help and assistance and guidance, um, which is the total opposite of 
what my personality back then would do because I was so trained. I started swimming at the age of four and finished close to 30. So I am trained like a, a soldier in that. I'm, you're like a gladiator. You're kind of, no matter what is happening, you focus on the objective and you win. And that's what you do. But in your personal life, when things start coming undone and emotionally you don't know how to deal with certain aspects of what's going on, um, it's quite destabilizing. Um, and you try and sort of run and hide from that or, or search for answers and you can't do it on your own. And, and that's the one thing that really undid me. When, when I did the comeback, that was really when I was probably in the midst of, of going through that really difficult period. And I only started swimming again to get fit. I just thought, right, I just want to try and stay fit and healthy and you know, get that emotional balance that's required just to, to be happy and, you know, try and be partially successful in life. And what ended up happening is I got so fast so quickly that I ended up going, oh, I might as well compete again. And then I became the, the oldest person to, to make the national swim team and, and went off to the world championships. So I really wish I just stopped then. Yeah. I, I wish I stopped then because then everyone was saying, go to Olympic trials, go to Olympic trials the following year. And I didn't really want to. And I think that reflected in my performance because underneath it all, I was like, I didn't even want to do a comeback. I could just still do it. I got to compete again. I kind of, I've done everything in this sport that you can do. Why do I actually need to keep proving myself in it? So I, in hindsight, I actually regret going the following year into the Olympic trials because I just don't think my heart was in it. Mm. So it, it seems like just listening to what you're saying there is that when when eventually you leave Westpac and join, Ostock turns into generation development it, it was almost in line with your private life and yourself feeling a lot more content and, a, and on a lot uh, flatter plane than what it had been is that is that a fair comment oh absolutely yeah I, I it was really funny because obviously most of my life I've, I've lived in australia i've spent you know many months of each year overseas competing or training because of sport but I, I took some time out um, the end of 2016, start of 2017, where I went and lived overseas with Michael Phelps. And uh, it was really good for me uh, to get out of the bubble of Australia because there was so much attention after, you know, a few things that took place that were really hard to, to manage and were a total disconnect, I guess, with my own value set. So it's even more destabilizing. Hang out with someone who's not so competitive, huh? <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> the, the best thing about hang, hanging out with Michael is you have full appreciation for one another and what each other's like. Um, and, and we have a very similar sense of humour. So um, it was the best thing for me to do because, one, I had an infrastructure over there, a very supportive, like his, his wife Nicole's fantastic. She's a very good friend as well. Um, and I got to get out of that bubble of being here in Australia and, and really sort through my stuff. You know, I, I, I got some support um, around me beyond, obviously, Michael and his circle, some more professional support just to get that guidance. And I actually felt like I got back to being myself, what I felt like probably through the 2000s, through the, the noughties. Um, and I just felt a lot more settled, a lot more focused. You know, my resilience had built back up. And um, then I knew it was time for that next transition. And I didn't take any shortcuts and all of that. I, I guess I faced all the, the challenges I needed to face to get the growth out of myself to mature and move forward and, and appreciate what I've been through and how I need to manage myself um, moving forward. So as much as I went through those really that really difficult period, you know, sort of post-divorce and all the, the subsequent things that took place and missing my, my kids through that, that period, which was ex the most difficult part, to be honest, out of all of it, I learned more about myself and, and who I am. I thought I, I knew a lot from sport because I was so successful there, but you don't learn all this stuff when you're being successful. You learn it when things go wrong. And I really deep-dived into that. I deep-dived into who I was, what made me tick, what I needed to do to, you know, look at my weaknesses and, and deal with those on a consistent basis and, and manage those. So as much as I hated going through all of that, it actually put me in really good stead moving forward and where I sit today. And um, and it's probably made me a more compassionate, empathetic person and probably a better leader because of that balance and because of those difficult situations that I've gone through. And, and I can pass that on to you know, people I work with or friends or, or anyone who, who wants help and support. And I even do it with younger athletes who are going through difficult periods even in their careers. So as much as it was hard, it's been, been beneficial. So if we go back to when you were 13, you heard Juan Antonio Samaranch announce that Sydney had won the Olympics. You, you're 13 and you say, I think to yourself and maybe to your family, that you want to swim at those Olympics and win. 
which is which was seven years away. Some pretty heavy duty goal setting in that. Very heavy duty on reflection at the time. It just felt perfectly normal, <laughs> and and that was that was the thing when he announced those Olympics. Um, and the fact that we were going to host them and I thought, well, I'm going to be 20, turning 20 that year, so it's going to be pretty ideal for me. Um, I thought, God, you just don't want to go. You want to win, right? Like that's that's the automatic response to something like that. So what I did was I, I, I'm not a sort of person who will put a goal out there and, and I don't really talk about my goals too much. I keep them to myself because they're my sense of purpose and then nothing to, to gloat about. But what I did at that age is I thought, well, what have I got to do to prepare to be the best? So let's go have a look at all of Kieran Perkins's time, who's a current, you know, world record holder, Olympic champion, etc., and see what he did for that age group. See what he did for, you know, not just the fifteen hundred meter freestyle, but the two hundred, the four hundred, the eight hundred, and of course the fifteen for every single age, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen. Then you're in the open category, and try and emulate or beat those times because this guy had the progression to be the very best ever. In this race and and that's exactly what i did and worked with my coach and every single year i came back and I, I i beat most of his times or emulated most of them there was a couple that were just way out there in terms of improvement like 40 seconds in one year over a 1500 meter freestyle which was just mind-blowing stuff so i think i only got within a couple seconds of that particular time when i was 16 but yeah, it was, it was really clear to me what needed to be done. And I was just a 13-year-old kid. No one taught me about goal setting. No one taught me about, you know, this is the way you should do it. I was kind of like, well, if you want to do something, you've got to go, well, what's the ingredients? It's like baking a cake, right? Like you don't just, the cake just doesn't pop up just because you're thinking about it. You've got to go, well, what actually goes into that to make it as perfect as possible? So, and that's exactly what I did with the sport. I've heard you talk about you set the long-term goal in your own head, but you've got to get there through digestible goals and I, I know that's what you're talking about there step by step so if if you take that goal setting that you've been able to achieve personally can you take that to a company such as generation life and and maybe give us some examples about how you set a longer term goal but do it step by step absolutely um the behaviors of success and the principles of success are exactly the same across any field there is nothing nothing dissimilar whatsoever. If you looked at high performance, whether it's a, a musician, whether it's someone in politics, whether it's someone in sport, whether it's someone in business, the fundamentals are exactly the same. So you have to have absolute clarity on your goals. You have to be able to break those down into digestible bits and go, okay, if we're, we've got the big goal and that feels really scary because it's, it's so big and we're so far away from that today, but then you, you just chunk it down. What do we actually have to do within the next, you know, six months or twelve months, or and and what run rate do we have to hit, and how much do we have to increase um, every single month, and what are the things that we need to put in place? Who who are the right members of the team to be able to effectively achieve that? So, you start with a big goal, you chunk it down, then you build the right infrastructure around it, and that's exactly what you do in sport. You go, I'm 13, I want to win the Olympics. I'm five laps behind on a 30 lap race right now. So that's how big that goal is. Like you're you're so far back, it's not funny. But what have I got to do every single year to make the gradual steps to get to the point where I'm actually ready to achieve something at that level? And then you build the infrastructure around you. You go, who's the right coach? Who are the right training partners? Who's the right physiotherapist? Who's the right um, strength and conditioning coach? And you get that, that group of people around you who understand the goal, who are focused on the goal, who keep you accountable um, and have ownership in that goal with you. And then you just make the steps and you work your backside off exactly what you need to do in business. You go, this is where we're at. This is where we want to be. These are the people they need. This is a strategy we've got to execute. Are we all signed up for it? Yep. Great. We're all accountable for our different parts of that. And we're all going to be working in the same direction together. We've got to call each other out when we need to, because that's one of the most critical elements that I've noticed that misses in business that people miss is feedback. They wait for these half-year or annual reviews or quarterly reviews. Feedback should be a, a constant part of your culture in my personal view. It should be something that you can give all the time and it should be free-flowing. So it doesn't feel like you're calling people out critically all the time, but if someone says something, you challenge it in a respectful, um, considerate way. But we're all trying to improve what we're doing or the way in which we're doing it and the way in which we're managing something. And so the feedback loop is constant because if you look at sport, right, if you go to a in a rugby team or an AFL team or, you know, you look at swimming, you are constantly getting feedback, your stroke, your technique. It's not offensive. It's, it's something that you actually need and you love it because you go, this is going to improve me. 
And I, one of the things that Rob Coombe, who's our, our chairman, um, and, you know, he's chairman of many different businesses, been the CEO of many different big businesses. And he, the one thing he actually enjoys working with me, I'm always asking for feedback and I don't take anything personally. I'm just like, okay, if I need to do that, but I'll do that, I'll do that. And I'm always trying to make that shift forward where a lot of other people take it personally, like they're, someone's actually criticizing them. Where in sport, you're always hungry for that feedback because you're always looking to get closer and closer to your goal. And I think that's one of the fundamental things, I think, in business. And and the culture, I think, we've created at Generation Development Group and Generation Life that's allowed our business to, to be number one in this particular market and go from 15% market share up to 40% market share of inflows within less than three years. So those things are absolutely critical because otherwise you get stale. People don't People keep doing the same behaviours and you wonder why they're not changing them. It's not a magic trick. You've got to talk to them about it and you've got to help them with it. So I think uh, that's one of the fundamental differences. As an overachiever, though, in, in your life, and it's not a great term, but you've achieved a lot more than, than most in your specified fields. You have to be careful because I've heard you say in previous interviews that there's the three silver medals that you achieved at the Olympics, which most people will be happy with. You're, when you look at it, you feel disgusted, which is a pretty heavy word. Even even when you're trying to go for that record-breaking three golds in a row in the 1,500 metres and you were just tipped out by, I think, the Tunisian swimmer Maluli. Yep. And it was by less than one second over 1,500 metres and you swam 14.41 or thereabouts, mm-hmm. one of the quickest time in history, and you say to yourself, you feel disgusted. It. That, that could be dangerous in a corporate environment because people are not going to achieve at that level. Yeah, I think um, I, I know, I guess I'm, you know, got half a brain that realises that probably using that sort of tone and language um, with other people doesn't necessarily resonate too well. Um, I, I think it's more around how you feel because yeah. you can't help your feelings sometimes. It's not what you say, it's... it's about things yeah and and look uh, when you were mentioning those silver medals and that third one i was sitting here kind of scrunching up my nose just thinking how crap i feel about that and and i feel so disappointed and yeah and that'll never change for me but that, that's just who i am and, and i accept that but uh, for, for other people you do need to know how other people work i think any good leader understands their people and you know some people i can give really direct feedback to um, and they take it on board and they make the changes. Um, they become more accountable within their roles and they improve their performance. It's simple. But there's some others where you do need to sugarcoat a little bit because they might be a little bit more of a sensitive person, which is good in one sense because they might have a higher EQ. So they're a good leader within their team and they're well-respected, but you've just got to watch how you place that feedback. So you do need to have the ability to be able to judge your audience and to be able to work with them. So I don't expect everyone to, to be like me and to – think like me about certain things. Um, I always, you know, when we have a good result, I just get on the edge of my seat and think, okay, we've got to do that again, but improve it. And that's where I go. And I think that's why I don't really get complacent. And that's what allowed me to stay at the top of my sport for over a decade is just because that's my nature. I'm almost got this eternal dissatisfaction or paranoia about the, the next result as soon as we've achieved that one. But I realize other people don't think like that. So I've actually got to stop and celebrate and you know, make sure that they feel the reward out of what they're doing. Because I'm not very good at feeling the reward. I'm very good at moving forward, but I'm not good at that that particular aspect. So there's certain things that I'm aware of. And, and like I was just saying before, those tough times I went through made me, you know, get more awareness or receive more awareness around who I am, how I operate, and what are my, my shortcomings as well. Now, with something we've talked about before is that swimming is an individual sport in many respects. You go up and down, up and down. You've got a lot of time to think to yourself. It's 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 a lone wolf kind of uh, pursuit. Now, when you come into a company, as you, da- you did with Westpac and now running a company, it's all about. It should be all about teamwork. Sure, there's leadership. So, if that's the case, how what what do you bring to the table, and how do you have to moderate what you did in swimming, or was there some things in your swimming career that made you ready to do that? I think. Um Swimming, there's this misconception that it is just an individual sport. It's funny. I always say the execution of swimming is individual, and that's about it. When you see us up on the blocks, no one can help you up there. You've got to do it on your own. But the rest of the time, it's very much team-orientated. We, we eat together. We travel together. Um, we have both male and female on our team. We have a very diverse um, 
you know, age group set where we could have a girl as young as, you know, 14, 15, like a Liesl Jones going to the Sydney 2000 Olympics, up to a 30-year-old male like a Brett Hawke on the team. So we have a very diverse set of people. So you get to work with all these different people. you got your physios, your massages, your coaches, your managers, all that sort of stuff on there as well. Um, when you're doing your training, yes, you're going up and down your own, but you're with your training partners the whole time going through it together and you're talking at the end of the pool and you've got your coach there. So it's all very much team orientated. You do your gym programs together, you push each other together. So it's just the actual execution of performance. It's not. And for me, I was I was team captain, um, you know, both the Olympic team and, and, and the swim team through those those years prior to that, those that four-year build-up. And I just naturally love to see people do well. So I'm the sort of person that um, I like to think I'm approachable and people come up and ask advice, you know, given my experience or background. And I very much like to help people and see them do well. So I think I I naturally had that sort of, um, you know, side to my personality where it wasn't just about me or being a lone wolf and getting my results and kind of shutting everybody else out. It was about going, okay, I've got my result. How do I actually help others get the best out of themselves too? So I think I was just naturally like that as an individual and that's why I got put in that position as captain of the team and to, to represent the team both in and out of the water. And I think that for me just transferred naturally into my business life. I didn't intend on going in there and becoming a you know great leader within business or anything like that straight away. I, I actually got put into a management role quite quickly because I could see how people worked. I saw the dynamics of the team. I was able to help get people up in their performance, even though my skill might not have been quite there yet. Um, That was something I think the bosses that were around me at that particular point in time could help refine and develop and and build over time. And and that's one of the things I I really learned is that I always had that kind of deliberate practice on everything that I did. So when I went into banking initially, and I was was 28 at the time to be um, exact, and I was, I was jealous of everybody else in there in the sense that, oh, they've had a few years out of uni before me to be able to get ahead of me. And now I've got to catch those people and then try and you know match them and then eventually or hopefully pass them. And I think I was able to do that in a pretty short time frame with a lot of the people there because most people get to a certain point and plateau and they're happy with that, that mediocrity to, to an extent. And so that's one of the things where I made a promise to myself I would never get like that because I saw a lot of that behaviour um, within the banking sector. And so I always looked for mentors or people that would keep challenging me and improving me the whole time. So as much as back to your question just on swimming being very much a, an individual sport, that's the perception of it. But it's almost a misconception in some ways because we really do operate as a team and you do need to know how to work with a diverse range of, of people. A captain or a, a captain of a swim team or a CEO of a company, which you are now, sets the standard, builds the culture. In most places, the culture's built and people get weeded out by it. Do you, do you feel like that's a very important part of your job today and that the people who want to go for the swim or the run with you at GDG will naturally be attracted to it while others will fall by the wayside? Definitely. Definitely, 100%. And that's happened um, quite a bit, to, to be frank. Um, if people don't sign up for the, the culture, it's really funny because we, we have two things that we really focus on. Um, and we've got our you know core sort of brand values and, and team values that we all subscribe to and we all sign up for. And I remind everyone on, of those values quite consistently, particularly if I'm doing an offsite or a coaching set, session, I always start off with those because I'm a big believer in those and what we represent. But I, there's two things I always come back to. I say we want to be a high-performing business with high-performing behaviours, but we want to enjoy and have a laugh with it at the same time too because they're not mutually exclusive. And I used to do that through swimming. Even on the hardest days, the hardest sessions, um, the most arduous physical tasks, we could still have a laugh around it. And, and we do that within our business. We might be working really long weeks or trying to achieve a certain goal or meet deadlines or new product innovations or whatever it might be, but we'll have a laugh doing it. So... People who don't, people often hear high performance and they want to be a part of it, but do they really? Because what goes into actual high performance and and executing at that level and trying to be number one in your field is a lot of work and it's very, very challenging. Um, And I don't think everyone truly wants to be like that. So, And I think our culture is is getting there. We we can always improve. There's certainly more we can do. We haven't got it yet, but I think we've proven to, to ourselves what we're capable of. You know, through COVID, we had record results and And we took, 
I think the business um, by the horns through that period where we said, we're going to play offensive, not defensive through this. We're going to continue to grow and we're going to set ourselves big goals. Um, we don't want to use that as an excuse. So I think we proved to ourselves that we could do that. Certainly, there's always going to be people that fall by the wayside. Or more importantly, um, if you're walking past something in your business that's not of the standard or not subscribing to those values, the standards that you walk by are the standards you accept. And we're very, very clear on that. So we've had to, you know, the, either the weeds um, you've either pulled out on your own or, you know, they've they've gone naturally. So um, the culture certainly does weed that out. And at the same time, if, if that's not doing it, then, you know, you've got the task as a leader or the particular manager in area to, to do that. I was having a think about who are the most recognisable corporate heads in Australia and I came up with you and two others, so Andrew Twiggy Forrest and probably Jerry Harvey, which, which is a bit unfair because they've built their reputations on building their businesses while you're new to the, the gig, you've become recognised elsewhere. But do you think that's... Do you think that's a weight around your neck? Do you think there's a bunch of people out there, especially in the investment community, saying basically waiting for you to fail because, you know, why, why is an ex-swimmer running a company? Is that is that a reality? Oh, of course. Um, people will be people. If you've got any sort of profile from a, a different type of background, um, and even if you don't, you always get a cop criticism. I think you're just more open to it when you've got more of a public profile. So, that naturally comes with the territory. Um, it's one of those things that you use to drive you and motivate you. I, I know um, even when I was, first went into banking, people would be thinking, why are you here? And it's like, well, you know, there's more to me than just swimming. I actually want to achieve in other fields and I've always been passionate about finance. So, And nothing changes here. And, and look, I'm going to go through successes. I know I'm going to go through failures. I know I'm going to learn from all of those, you know, uh, various lessons that I'll have along the way. Um, but at the end of the day, if you, you focus on the criticism too much, it can occupy you and it can it can consume you. And I've always been very intrinsically motivated. Um, and so I just really try and put my energy back on on that and really just focus on our goals. And, you know, there, there's more to, to me than just swimming. And, and I almost think if I was one of these athletes that hadn't quite achieved my goals that people didn't know about, I could have taken all those lessons from sport because I know there's a lot of athletes out there that might have got on a national team that might have represented Australia in rugby or some other sport but don't necessarily have a high profile. But all the lessons of you know hard work and teamwork and discipline and goal setting and the way they focus and that determination that they bring is just that, that particular type of personality. They go into other fields and they excel. So I think um, if you're given the opportunity to develop a new skill set and go into an area that you feel a deep sense of purpose in, which I certainly do, you can use all those lessons from sport and certainly excel. But there is, um, I always said, you know, sport has opened the door for me, but once you're in there, you have to prove yourself twice as much. And uh, I don't think anything's changed around that, but that's okay. I can I can wear that sort of pressure. That's fine. I don't mind. You can handle that. So let's dig back into uh, GDG, Generation Development. And swimming which you've come from has some very definite ways of measuring success, whether it be a time, whether it be winning medals, as we've talked about. How, how will you measure success at at your level in your company as we go forward? What should we look out for? What's successful? Uh, the, the, there's a few KPIs. Um, the, the difference between swimming and uh, or sport and business is that you can get confused on KPIs. As much as you said, you know, you can win a gold medal or it's a time, whatever it might be, it's usually pretty definitive. You go to an Olympics, either win or lose, same at a World Championships, Commonwealth Games. In business, it can be a little bit more grey. Um, and so you've got to really know what's important in your business. If I was to look at a, a Generation Life, the life company, there's two things that really matter. One is um, product sales, um, you know, which was great. We were up 48% last year with a record year. And the other one's active financial advisors. 90% of our inflows come through the financial advice or the, the intermediary channel. And so if we have more active advisors, which the definition of that is if they've written, pardon me, um, a bond, one bond on a rolling 12-month average or more than one bond, then that you know determines uh, an active advisor. We had 451 of those back in 2017. We closed the last financial um, year at 1,220, and I think we finished the first quarter of FY21 now, and that rolling average is about you know 1,270-odd. 
So we're continuing to grow um, our financial advisors who support our business and write business consistently with us year on year. And every time you go into a new financial year, if you've got more advisors writing business with you, naturally you've got a bigger baseline that you can then continue to develop and work on and obviously achieve a higher sales number. So those kind of two two key metrics really drive one another. And then outside of that, it's naturally just managing the P&L. So, you know, we're in a position now where we can pay our underlying earnings, um, sorry, our dividend out of underlying earnings instead of capital, which each year we had to pay a portion of that out of capital. We can continue to invest heavily back into the business in terms of product innovation or a lot of automation because we have a lot more customers now that we need to manage. So we've been able to you know, have that discretionary spend now, which is a lever you can obviously pull if there was a sharp economic contraction again. And then outside of... Um, all of that, our FUM continues to, to grow um, to, to record highs that we've never seen within this business before. So across all the sort of key metrics and key areas of the business, um, we, we seem to be growing and we're also able to invest more inside the business to, to you know future growth and be able to offer more products to, to customers. And now that we've got a bigger network of customers that we can actually offer that to as well. So sticking with the light business, is there a longer-term vision, an ultimate size. You put all that together, what you're talking about, the, the the goals going along. Is there a limit to what you can grow this business to? If, if you have that kind of 2020 Olympics, that seven-year vision, if you go down that path? Oh, look, we, we have some pretty big numbers in mind. I, I don't want to share those because I feel like I'll be giving guidance to the market given we're a listed company. But um, <laughs> Ten-year ten guidance. <laughs> There's the, the thing is, there's probably three key things that's going on in our business at the moment that I allude to. One is, you know, the size of the investment bond space is, is, is about 12 billion, 10 to 12 billion. Um, and we currently have about 1.3 to 1.4 billion of that. Um, we're continuing to, to grow that space because of a lot of the innovations. And we've got some, some new products coming out at the moment, such as an equity income fund that'll distribute from day one. So you'll get tax benefits from day one instead of having to wait 10 years to really reap those rewards. So that's the first one. So we're playing in that sort of space. Um, the next thing that we're actually looking at is the annuity space. Um, you know, you just saw the, the retirement income review come out. There's a lot of commentary um, around annuities. Um, traditional lifetime annuities don't quite offer the same value because we're in a contracting interest rate environment. The cash rate only at 10 basis points. You know, CPI growth is, you know, next to nothing at the moment given the whole COVID situation. And none of that stuff looks like it's changing in the immediate to, to sort of long-term even um, future when you look at the yield curve. So from our perspective, we're like, well, we'd love to play in the annuity space and we wanted to for years because we've got a life license that we want to leverage. And now we finally found a product um, that we're building at the moment and we're going to distribute at the end of 2021, which is a market-linked annuity. Now, the post-retirement asset space is $566 billion today and only 1% of it is in um, lifetime annuities. Um, and longevity risk is one of the big themes that you would have seen in the Retirement Income Review and Frydenberg and Senator Jane Hume made a lot of commentary and a lot of noise around um, in the various news, news articles um, that came out just over the, the course of um, that review um, being released. So that's a space we want to play in because it's growing so rapidly as well. If you look at that in the next 10 years, that's going to be over $1.1 trillion. And if you can get 2 or 3% um, of that with a with a market linked annuity which the market has never seen before um, and offers about 30% more value than traditional lifetime annuities it's a very compelling proposition it's a growing market if you only take a couple of percent of 1.1 trillion you know it's not too hard to work out what the numbers could possibly be for the life company so we see the investment bond space is very attractive and we'll get really good organic growth out of that but we really see the annuity space and the product that we're going to be launching next year as a, a transformational opportunity for the business and be able to drive significant FUM above anything in the bond space. Okay, so let's switch to your latest acquisition, which is the 37% purchase of Lonsec, the research and financial ratings house. And as you said at the start, that it, it's one of three in terms of ratings. It was a bit of a left field acquisition and it's a part acquisition. Do you just want to run us through how that sits beside your life business and how it fits in and the opportunity there? Yeah, it, it was a little bit left field. And the trouble was um, 
we we would go out, we would do our investor updates and you know analyst updates, etc. At the end of the results, and then we would always talk about you know organic growth and naturally you move into acquisitions. What are you looking for? We'd say these categories, and we couldn't say the research category because you know we'd be looking at one of three players, <laughs> and so we couldn't really give that away. Um, so it, it was definitely left field, but that's the great thing about it one of three players. And we always said, we want to have a diversified financial services business with multiple channels of revenue. You know, if there's legislative change and you've seen businesses being killed off because of legislative change and you have one product, you're a monoline product offering, you're going to be in all sorts of trouble. And we don't want to be in that position and we don't want our shareholders to, to be in that position. So we've been looking probably out of the marketplace for four key areas from an acquisition point of view. One is strong reoccurring revenue. Um, a niche segment, um, so high barriers to entry to get into, uh, turbocharging the, the the growth opportunity and strong reoccurring revenue. Um, and this business really ticks all of those boxes quite strongly. If you look at the research business, um, anyone who's you know has any sort of financial product that they want to distribute to to retail, you need a research rating, and you generally need Lonsec, and it needs to be renewed every single year. Um, so, therefore, they're a gate you know, gatekeeper to distribution and you need to have them. So that's really strong reoccurring revenue that grows year on year for, for that particular part of the, the business. Managed accounts is one of the fastest growing spaces uh, within uh, financial services. Um, and since the Royal Commission, um, being independent is absolutely key. And that's one of the things that um, Lonsec obviously has on its side, the fact that it's an independent research business. Um, it's Lonsec Investment Solutions um, with that managed account offering and that portfolio construction um, consultancy business that they have is turbocharged for growth and in a great position to be able to catch those regulatory tailwinds. So if we look at that um, closing balance of that particular business, it was at $700 million as of 30 June 2020. And it's been growing in excess of 5% per month on that overall FUM. So that's where the, the biggest opportunity for growth comes in that business. So you've got strong reoccurring revenue, you've got a great growth opportunity, you've got high barriers to entry, and you've got a very, very reputable um, business that's got strong brand affinity within financial services. So we saw that as a no-brainer um, once we really you know, did the due diligence, deep-dived into the business, deep-dived into the, the longer-term opportunity. And... Um, you know, we, we're the biggest shareholder in that now. One of the things that's key, people often ask when we were doing the capital raise, um, why didn't you get a majority stake, a controlling stake um, within that business? Uh, firstly, that wasn't available, but we have a thing called a pool development fund license. Um, Generation De Development Group does, the, the listed entity on the ASX. Now, what that means is any share price appreciation, um, there is no capital gains tax on that as an investor. So this is in this is in the people who own the shares. This is the, the, the investors. Yep, that's right. So this is talking about the, the the corporate structure now. So it has a PDF, which that means any appreciation, no CGT, any dividends are tax exempt as well. So these tax concessions are, are, are quite significant for shareholders. Um, it is quite limiting. There are there are certain parameters that you need to to play within to retain that license. And if you make an acquisition that's greater than you know, 30% of owner's equity and a few other parameters that you have to work within, then you'll you'll break the terms of that license. And look, we might do that one day if there was a deal out there that we saw, saw as highly accretive and very, very attractive for the long-term prospects of Generation Development Group. Um, but this deal fits within the parameters of that license. So we were able to retain the PDF through this acquisition. Um, so that's one of the other key drivers around just getting a 37% stake because we were able to um, still keep those uh, benefits intact for shareholders. So overall, we think it's been a great um, deal for shareholders. Um, we've certainly kept monitoring, obviously, the Lonsec business. It's been performing very, very well. The bond business has continued to grow and perform very, very well. So we're very, very pleased with the way everything's going. We had our AGM recently and we were able to give, give the market an update then. And um, we certainly think um, you know, FY21 is going to, to be a great year for the business overall. In the long run, though, that, that 37%, you would hope to grow it as you get away from you know, the, the benefits of being a pool development fund because as you grow as a business, it's hard to imagine in five years, 10 years' time that you could keep that status. That would be ideal, yeah. So so as we do grow, um, and like I said, if there's an acquisition that does come along that's, that's highly accretive or, or attractive from a growth opportunity point of view, 
we will certainly um, entertain that notion that we might hand back that PDF at that particular point in time. There's certainly nothing on the table at the moment, but you would think over time that you you would naturally acquire, would acquire more than that 37% stake and get to a uh, controlling shareholding. So the average lifespan of a CEO in Australia is approximately five years and the average CEO is taller than the average person on the street or in the public. So you will qualify on the, on the, on the second of those two, you're slightly taller, you're keeping the average up. So that and I'll, you reti- I'll, retire. I'll retire young by the sounds of things too. <laughs> well, let, let's just assume you can reach that average, which is a bit over, it's probably just under four years away. You, you talked about four-year cycles in your own head, given their Olympic cycles. So between the, the Japanese and I think it's the Paris Olympics, so 2024 yep. uh, Olympics. What what would you have liked to achieve then? Would you have grown the bomb business, obviously the light business, um, grown the Lonsec business? But in terms of generation development, GDG, um, another business, uh, a much bigger business. I mean, what, what, how big is your ambition? I know I asked you about the potential before, but maybe just paint a picture of what it looks like when we're sitting watching the Paris Olympics. I would like to think that we're a diversified financial services firm operating in probably four or five different areas. Um, so you look at you know the investment bond space, the annuity space, the research business. You know, there's there's other potential businesses or areas out there that we'd love to get into. Could even be distribution at some point. Could be anything. Nothing's really off the table as long as we see it as an attractive opportunity that we can obviously drive um, the, the appropriate growth around. Um, and all of those businesses, you know, with with solid empaths. Um, on their own individual balance sheets. So if from a P&L point of view, they could all be driving 5 million plus worth of NPAT um, and we've got diversified earnings out of all of those key areas, um, that would be ideal. So it would be a significantly larger group, um, you know, probably a top 300 company at that particular point in time, well and truly. So, yeah, that would be uh, a, a pretty exciting proposition. So with uh, with a big, big annuity business, I think that would be the thing I'd be most proud of um, is is really growing that annuity book because you know longevity risk is is one of the the biggest themes within our country and you know the post retirement asset space is just growing so rapidly and I don't think we've been able to to really solve that equation around longevity risk and support the average Australian and um, if we can contribute to that as a business I think that's something that's really exciting from a, a social point of view. And then obviously, if you're a shareholder within our business, it's, it's very exciting from a financial point of view because of just how, how profitable that area potentially could be. But yeah, I think that would be super exciting if we had a few billion dollars uh, of FUM there. Talking about shareholders, it's something you haven't had to deal with before. They're one of the great stakeholders in a business, among others. When, when you first came to GDG, Rob Coombs, who was your old boss at Westpac, was there, he was running it, he was talking to the shareholders. More recently, you've taken over that, and it's your turn to have a go. Do you like dealing with shareholders? Um, is it a good relationship or do you find it a little bit inhibiting? Yeah, I, I always feel like I've always had to manage stakeholders at some sort of level, um, regardless of what it is. Yeah, whether you're in sport, it can be anything from sponsorship to fans to, you know, you, you, your own coaches and, you know, everybody around you who's looking for a result um, out of you, whether that's, you know, short, medium or long term, it doesn't matter. They're, they're still looking for a result and you've got to be able to generate that. So I find that type of pressure um, no different. I like shareholders in the sense that it just keeps you highly accountable um, you can't get sloppy running a public company. You've got to be on it the whole time. Um, I'm very paranoid, like I said, naturally as a person in terms of results. So if I feel like anything's slipping or a part of the business is slipping, I, I know I'm always on top of it and always having the the conversations that need to be had. So, And I think even shareholder accountability drives that um, behavior even more. So you do need to be careful that you're not doing things short-term to get a short-term fix. I'm always thinking of the big picture of the organization and where we want to be. So if you do need to make tactical decisions short term to ensure the growth and the, the, the business and the vision that you're trying to bring to life over the medium to longer term, you've got to make sure that you have um, almost the constitution or the stomach to be able to cop a bit of flack short term to be able to, to get the outcome that you, you're looking for. So no, I don't I don't mind any of that. I mean, I was in the, the 
Generation Development Group CEO role back in, in 2018. So I've been doing that for a, for a couple of years now. And, uh, you know, the Generation Life CEO position I, I took on more recently. But at the end of the day, um, I think it's something that's um, almost healthy for you and, and something you just need to manage and stay accountable to. No doubt that will be a, a goal, a setting achievement and a success. Now, we have established that you are a music fan and no doubt you are a big country music fan and a Willie Nelson fan. <laughs> uh, this year, Willie turned, well, he was 86 and he released a single called Our Song. The opening of that song goes, in this time that I've been given to my life with living, I hope I've done the best that I can do. Now, I know Willie's 86 and you're only 40 and you're starting the next leg of your career. But do you think at this point you've done the best that you can do? Oh, no, no, not at all. I think I'm doing the best I can for now. But the best I can do, I, I would like to think, is still ahead of me. Um, the most important attribute that I, I see um, in anyone who's successful is their willingness to be curious and to learn and to grow and develop. So if you can continue to grow and develop, I always think the best of you is ahead of you. Um, and that's not to undermine what you've achieved at the, this particular point in time, but I always think I'm always looking forward and I'm always looking a way, for a way to improve. So I always kind of embrace that aspect. So if I was to say that the, the best of me is right now, um, hopefully it's better tomorrow. Well, there's no doubt there's a lot of energy, so maybe we can sit down in 46 years. We can. I'll probably be over that underlying um, sort of you know, way of living then, <laughs> I might think I just want to give myself a bit of a break, but for now, no. I'll be 98, so I'm not sure what kind of contribution I'll make to the conversation. <laughs> Thanks very much, Grant. We really appreciate your time and obviously your honesty, and we wish you all the very best at GDG. And as Leslie Nielsen said on the Flying High movie to the sit-in pilot, just remember we're all counting on you. <laughs> sounds good love it thanks very much matt appreciate your time and, and thanks for having a chat it's tough at the top but some people just love climbing the mountain and trying to stay there for as long as possible even for me a person who has known the guest for many years i still haven't quite worked out why they've been able to pull off the remarkable each time i talk to them though i learn a little more and today was no exception if you like today's episode subscribe through apple or spotify or if you're a live wire reader, give this wire a like.